Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its implications on our relationships, our markets, and our futures. I'm Siobhan. I'm Bianca. And we'll be hosting you in this series. Today, we're incredibly honoured to be speaking with Professor Mindy Chen Wishart on Asian Contract Law. Professor Chen Wishart is Professor of the Law of Contract at Oxford University and a Tutorial Fellow in Law at Merton College. She is currently also the Dean of the Faculty of Law at Oxford. Professor Chen Wishart is author of Contract Law, currently in its sixth edition, and is leading a large project on the contract laws of Asia to be published with Oxford University Press. She holds a fractional professorship at the National University of Singapore and a visiting professorship at Hong Kong University. Professor Chen Wishart, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today on Asian contract law and the major project you're currently undertaking in this field. So to start us off, could you tell us more about this project that you're working on? Yes, and thank you for the warm welcome. Uh, And congratulations on this initiative um, in uh, starting this podcast series. I'm extremely impressed. So uh, the the project that I'm uh, leading is called Studies in the Contract Laws of Asia, and it's a series of six volumes published by the Oxford University Press. And uh, the six volumes run the gamut of the topics on contract law, and uh, it covers 14 countries, and each country puts forward two papers. So volume one is on remedies for breach of contract, and that was published in 2016. Volume two is on formation of contract and third parties, and that was published in 2018. Volume three is on um, the contents of contracts, including unfair terms, and that came out this, uh, last year the end of last year. Volume four is on vitiating factors and that will come out the end of this year. And then volume five will be on ending and changing contracts, um, including change of circumstances and frustration, which is quite topical at the moment. And that will come out in 2022. And then the last volume will be on illegality and public policy. Now, the project involves over a 100 scholars from all over Asia, and the idea is to uh, build capacity in a subject which we are literally creating on the ground. Uh, The countries represented are China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, India, Indonesia, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, Myanmar, and the Philippines. Well, that sounds really comprehensive, um, both in terms of subject matter and geographical points of view. Could you tell us how you became interested in this project and how it all started? Okay, well, um, I was involved in the Principles of Asian Contract Law, which is a harmonization law project, sort of an an analogue of the Principles of European Contract Law. And um, I thought that to really succeed the Asian jurisdictions needed a better understanding of each other's contract laws. Uh, In Europe, we know that comparative lawyers have for a very long time examined each other's contract laws in a detailed, technical and doctrinal way. And that scholarship has played a vital role in harmonisation law projects like PECO, the Principles of European Contract Law, 
but it's also underwritten international instruments like the CISG and the UNIDRAP principles. And so I felt that the Asian Harmonization Project was perhaps going a little too fast. Um, more homework was needed before we could start talking about harmonization in a sensible way. There's just no common Asian language, there's no Asian lingua franca, and um, post-World War II uh, there are some political sensitivities, which means that there is unlikely to be a common Asian language. Um, you can't expect everybody to, to use Chinese or Japanese. Um, so I, I found that there was very, in order to be able to communicate with each other, I felt there was no other choice but to go English. And I found just very little written in English uh, on some of the Asian jurisdiction and absolutely nothing in others. And actually, not only do we need to, do the Asian jurisdictions need more understanding of each other, but that English was also really important to allow uh, European um, understanding of what was going on in Asia. So people who are doing comparative law in Europe are sometimes criticised for being very Eurocentric and for ignoring the Asian voice. But even if they try really hard, it's impossible to overcome this because there are a lack of uh, individual studies available in English and they can't be expected to learn Viet Vietnamese or they don't believe they are. So in order to be able to, to access this material... And uh, same in legal education in comparative law. If you want to refer to Asian law, then you really need the materials. And if they're not available in English, then you cannot teach it. So it struck us as really very important to have this first step of putting the material out there. So why is it important for us to learn about the contract laws of Asia? Well, we felt um, that the series would allow both Asians and Europeans to access um, modern and high-quality accounts of contract laws in Asia, and so to open up the channels of communication in the global village. Post-Brexit, this has become even more important. It uh, provides the necessary groundwork for harmonisation. It would facilitate teaching comparative Asian contract law, um, it would clearly be a valuable resource for scholars, practitioners, business people, lawmakers, government, and so on. Um, I think there has historically been a, uh, a tendency for the West to underestimate what it can learn from Asia. Now, I just tell you a little story. I was at a contract law conference in Los Angeles, and I stepped into a session where a speaker was putting forward what he clearly thought was a radical and daring thesis. And at the Q&A, I asked him whether he had mentioned Japanese law on the matter. Now, the room broke out in laughter as if it was some crazy, fantastical suggestion. Why on earth would anyone bother with Japanese law? And I said, well, because what you're proposing is the law in Japan, and it is the law in Korea and Thailand. Oh, they said, and they stopped laughing. Um, and I also think that the rising power and emerging markets of Southeast, Southeast and Southeast Asia, you know, they have a combined population of 4.2 billion people. And so it is really uh, the height of hubris not to know and not to care about how they regulate their transactions 
we are going to um, to do to to do that understanding would uh, um, would uh, would avoid misunderstandings and avoid reinventing the wheel. Now, the economic strength is growing all the time. The GDP in that area. The Financial Times has said that the Asian century has begun. Uh, in 2020, um, the GDP in Asia has overtaken the rest of the world. These are not only jurisdictions of the future, they are jurisdictions of the present, and we can't afford not to know what's going on there. Could you tell us more about the relationship between European contract law and Asian contract law? Yes, it's really very fascinating. Uh, the contract laws of all these Asian jurisdictions that we covered are transplanted from European laws. Um, so, for example, almost a third of the world's population lives in regions that are influenced by the common law. Hong Kong, Singapore, India, Malaya, Malaysia, Myanmar, um, strongly influenced by common law ideas, institutions and methods. Uh, result of colonialism, obviously, right? Many of Asia's civilian jurisdictions are directly or indirectly linked to Japan, and they are Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Cambodia. And here the transplant is via Japan's early adoption of German law during the Meiji Restoration, and then Japan's subsequent colonialism. Um, and of course, the French um, transplanted their law to Vietnam. I found this fascinating because um, I was a historian before I was a lawyer. So this tapped into the work I did on some Asian history and I felt I was uniquely placed both as uh, an, uh, both as someone born in Taiwan but educated in New Zealand and working in Oxford um, but also as a historian and as a lawyer. I felt somewhat uniquely qualified to to take on this project. Uh, China's contract law is a mixture of everything, you know, civil law, common law, international instruments, restatements, and then they have um, judicial interpretations of the Supreme People's Court. So in a way, it's a hybrid common law, civil law system. And then the most recent Asian codifications of contract law is in Cambodia, and it's drafted with the assistance of Japanese experts, and it's heavily influenced by international instruments. Now, in contrast, Indonesia um, seems frankly unbelievable to the outsider. Uh, there are three contract laws operating simultaneously. The first is the indigenous law of different ethnic groups, so that's already pluralistic. The second is Islamic contract law, and that's also pluralistic because of the, because of the different schools of Islam. And then the third, the commercial contract law, is Dutch contract law, which is based on French contract law. And that's been enforced in Indonesia since 1846, unbelievably. And the amazing thing is, it's in Dutch, and there's no official Indonesian language version of it. And uh, sort of 90% of lawyers and judges do not understand Dutch or French. And uh, the Dutch law was actually substantially reformed in 1992. So for, for an outsider, we, we just wonder, how is this possible? How does it work? And it's not in some far-flung corner of the world. It's in the world's 
fourth most populous country. How come we don't know more about it? So it seemed to me, I felt a little bit like David Attenborough, that <laughs> I was discovering things in plain sight. Um, so, of course, all of this phenomenon is called legal transplant, and and it's, it's actually uh, really quite... And I think our project can shine a light on this because... Um, there is a, a very large number of legal transplants in colonial history, and post-World War II development programs often involve legal transplants. And we see legal transplants in the, uh, after the collapse of the communism in the former, former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And then there's these moves towards regional codes, especially in commercial law. Um, in an increasingly globalised world. So, I mean, the short of it is no one makes new laws anymore. We just copy. It's plagiarism all the way down, but we're allowed to do it, you know. And so um, it seems to me that it's a really good study in some of the controversial issues relating to legal transplants. Some people say it's completely impossible because if you transplant laws, it's just law on the books, and once it's cut off from its roots, it stops existing. Um, but other people say, you know, like Alan Watson says, uh, transplanting law is really easy. Look at Roman law, look at the common law. And so I do think that each side is right and simultaneously wrong. Um, if you move a tomato plant from one place to another, it's still a tomato plant, but how it develops subsequently depends on the conditions in its new home, because context is everything, um, and Asia is a perfect laboratory to study this. I can only imagine what a mammoth task it must have been trying to bring together so many different leading thinkers across a region as diverse as Asia. Could you walk us through some of the challenges that you faced in bringing this project to fruition? Yes, um, it really was. I think I was quite foolish going in, um, not, re not really taking um, measure of uh, the things that were going to be required. Um, the first is obviously trying to deal with contributors who are writing really very sophisticated le legal English in a foreign language. Uh, it was a major undertaking to find contributors with that combination of excellent scholarship and excellent written English from so many places and getting their pieces to the OUP standard. So we took lots of extra measures like providing very detailed guidance, providing hypotheticals. We um, encouraged them uh, to, to explore uh, controversies in their own ju jurisdictions. We gave them a mini reading list on comparative materials. We held a um, colloquium, we read their papers beforehand, we gave them talking points so that um, we could concentrate on the common issues, the unusual features, the gaps, or um, further issues to clarify. The second problem we encountered um, was a cultural one, um, which surprised me because I thought that being brought up in Taiwan and being quite Asian, I would uh, understand it. but. Um, the Confucian hierarchy is, is still a very strong influence in Asia. And most of our contributors that were recommended to me were, um, certainly in the first volume, they were very well respected in their jurisdictions. They were senior and they were usually male. And they're used to a high level of deference and 
respect and gratitude. So when um, I kept asking them to clarify or to fill their gaps or to clarify their English, um, they weren't always happy. And it took many, many rounds of this. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes we went back seven or eight rounds of editing. In one case, I basically ghost wrote it. In another case, you know, I mean, there were just so many problems. And so the the project was first conceived in 2012 and volume one um, was published in 2016. And in between that, I, I, I found the need to take up yoga and meditation. So, uh, well, another, actually another difficulty is was the lack of resources in English. So often there were just no reliable English translations of their sources. The contributors therefore had to work with semi-official translations, which weren't really reliable. Some of them made no grammatical sense, you know, even the, and, and even worse was the case law. So the contributors had to really invent their own contract law in English. So I pay great tribute to them for the invisible work that they were doing. Um, and, and probably the last issue is that in many of the jurisdictions, the contract law was incredibly dynamic in that it was moving as we were trying to write. So just to give you an example, the Chinese uh, civil code was reformed in 2020, so a lot of our work is now already out of date. The Japanese contract law was also revised in 2020. Vietnam had their third uh, civil code since, um, is on their third civil code since 1995. So we had to juggle new drafts, new codes, no case law, it was very much a moving target for, for many of them and, and quite tough as an editor, I found. What are some conceptual or functional similarities that unite Asian contract law regimes? The general wisdom of comparative law is that every legal system faces essentially the same problems and they solve es these problems by different means, although very often with similar results. And so it turns out to be in Asia, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. So these are examples where it looks like we're doing different things, but actually in in practical terms, it turns out we're doing something quite similar. Now, first is on what are enforceable agreements. So broadly speaking, civil law says they will enforce one-sided gifts, but common law says they will only enforce exchanges. Now, this seems like a major difference, but in practice, not so, because in civil jurisdictions, uh, many gifts can be revoked before performance. Now, if they can be revoked, that means they're not enforceable, right? So if it's one-sided, it's you can revoke it. Um, and China is one example, Taiwan's another. Um, uh, another example is that gifts uh, can be set aside for a far wider range of reasons than bargains. So um, they're not very binding. Um, hardship to the donor, ingratitude of the donee. Uh, another one is remedies. Remedies are also much narrower for gifts. So uh, they're not exactly the same, but they're pretty close. Uh, another example is remedies for breach. And in the civil law, the primary remedy is performance of the promise. So if it's breach, you can make them do it. But in common law, it's monetary compensation and only very rarely actual performance. But actually, there's actually a lot of convergence towards the common law position that money is the main remedy. 
Um, and so the finer points of the law is that the civil law says, well, it's performance even if you pay to have it done by someone else. Now, if you pay to have it done by someone else, that sounds a lot like damages at common law. Um, and civil law will not give specific performance um, based on, quote, unquote, the nature of the obligation. And this reflects many of the common law reasons for not giving specific performance as well. So contracts of personal service, I can't force you to be my nurse. I can't force you to, you know, continue to work with me. Um, that kind of thing, constant supervision. Uh, and also the, the civil law says they have a duty of good faith. And that actually covers a lot of the reasons why in common law we would not give um, specific performance. So again, these uh, there are you know these differences turn out to be a lot less than in reality. Um, the third quick example is the test of intentions. So civil lawyers largely adopt a subjective test. What we care about, you know, we say we enforce contracts because you intended it. Well, civil civil lawyer says, well, we care about what you really intend. But common lawyer says we take the objective approach. And we say, well, the the question is what a party reasonably appears to attend, intend, irrespective of what they actually intended. So if I nod my head, but I say, oh, actually, I didn't intend, we would say, well, objectively, a reasonable person would think if you nodded that you intended it. Now, but the thing is, you know, one is subjective, one is objective, but they travel towards each other. So civil jurisdictions objectivize the subjective because they say well in order to determine what you really intended we'll look at convention and custom of the market the purpose of the contract and good faith so these are all external to what's in someone's head and then when we look at the common law they subjectivize the objective right so they're traveling towards each other so even if you said uh, something, but I know from the context you couldn't have meant what you said, right? Then I can't hold you to it. And so um, there are many examples of that. Now, on the other hand, something might look like they're similar, but actually they turn out to be very different. And a prime example is comes from a comparison of Singapore and common law. Right. And in this case, I'm going to use English common law, but it would be the same in Hong Kong, for example. So a prime example is a line of cases which uh, in which Singapore says they are following the English law exactly. But when they apply the law, they come to diametrically opposite conclusions. And this I discovered when I was teaching in Singapore. And I was so fascinated, I followed this up and, and wrote an article out of it. So it relates to um, a scenario where a debtor, who is often a husband, gets into financial trouble, and then he gets his wife or his adult children to guarantee a loan from a bank, right? So he forces them to guarantee a loan. And when he defaults, the question is whether the wife and the child can escape um, if he has exercised so-called undue influence on the wife or the son. Now, as I said, um, probably what's easiest is if I give you some an example. So two typical uh, common law cases is uh, BCCI and Abudi. The husband and wife were Iraqi Jews. She married at 17. 
he is 20 years older than her, and she is firmly confined to the domestic sphere. Business was his domain, and she uh, believed it was her wifely duty to do whatever he said. Now, when the bank insisted on giving her independent advice before she agreed to the guarantee, the husband um, burst in and said, what the hell's going on? You're taking too long. Just get her to sign, reduced her to tears, um, and this solicitor wrote down, husband is a bully, she wants peace. And the court found that there was undue influence. Um, in another case, um, uh, Bennett, the husband, told the wife that she was being disloyal um, and that she would be a waste of rations if she refused to guarantee his business debts and she would be splitting up the family. And the judge found this was moral blackmail um, amounting to coercion and victimization. Now, this is all accepted in Singaporean law, but here is their typical case. In Overseas Chinese Banking Corporation and Ching Sok Lee, the father couldn't repay a loan of 5.5 million Singapore dollars. Now, his wife and 23-year-old son guaranteed this debt. The court accepted that the father had an ungovernable temper and that he was exceptionally harsh and occasionally violent. And he also abused his son verbally in a cruel and unusual manner, so said the judge. Now, as a result of which, the son would burn himself with cigarettes to deal with the mental pain that the father had inflicted. So he was self-harming. The mother and son were told to guarantee, to sign the guarantee, not to ask any questions, and the court found no undue influence. Why was that? Well, that's the obvious question, isn't it? So I started looking into this and found, um, uh, well, you, you have to look at the culture, I think, and 75% of Singaporean population are ethnically Chinese. So at least part of the explanation, I don't say all of it, I think can be found in the Confucianism that is uh, integral to the Chinese civilization, culture, and social organization. Um, it's, you know, Confucianism is synonymous with what it means to be Chinese, and it guides proper behavior. It's built into the language, the ritual, the tradition. And so I suggest in my paper that there are three overlapping aspects of Confucianism in contrast to broadly Western values, which are behind the English doctrine of undue influence, which has been adopted by the common law jurisdictions, so um, which I think explains at least part of it. So first is the contrast between equality and hierarchy. So the West tries to achieve social order by a system of rights that can be agreed by equals and protected by law. But in the East, Social order is achieved by observing a very detailed code of conduct based on a rigid hierarchy of generational sequence, gender, and age. All right? uh, where you are in the hierarchy, and therefore how you should behave, is expressed in an elaborate terminology of titles. You know, I remember as a child knowing that, um, that, that all of my relatives, my father's one of 10 children, my mother's one of five, and all my relatives had a different title. The wife of the second uncle on my mother's side has a distinct title, you know. And when I moved to New Zealand and found that all these people were called uncles and aunts, I thought, well, English is going to be super easy, right? Um, and of course, the representative relationship is father and son. 
Uh, women don't figure in Confucianism, by the way, so I've got a you know grudge against him. Now the son clearly must give willing obedience. The son can persuade but never oppose. They should even hide the father's wrongdoing from the state. The um, fathers have almost absolute power over their children, and historically they can even put them to death, especially for being unfilial. Now the second contrast is between persons and roles. So in the West, we place primary importance on the person and their uniqueness. But Confucianism emphasizes conformity to a particular role. Ritualized conduct according to one's place in the hierarchy is given an, uh, an almost aesthetic dimension in the cultivation of the good life. So this reduces the importance of and legitimacy of individual differences and individual choice. The, key con the concept of an individual right is somewhat alien in Chinese tradition. Rather, the key emotions are respect, obligation, and duty to elders and to males in general, historically. The third contrast is between individualism and collectivism. So the West emphasizes the moral worth and rights of the individual. The key concept is autonomy. But Confucianism emphasizes family relationships and mutual dependence. Uh, maintaining the collective uh, security and well-being is prioritized over individual interests. The individual is seen as insignificant without the family and the wider community. So the family is the basic unit of society and the Chinese write their family name first. So this collectivism then expresses itself in a call for self-sacrifice, self-restraint, self-effacement, avoidance of conflict, and transgressions dishonor the whole family. Shame is the uh, effective controlling technique in the East rather than guilt, which is a more personal concept and a more Western concept. Now, the values are so deeply ingrained that refusal to obey the patriarch is difficult, if not impossible. Um, even if you wanted to disobey, you would find it emotionally very distressing to do so. And, it, and, that, and that makes you vulnerable to um, pressures um, to conform. And these are precisely the issues that the doctrine of undue influence deals with. So my conclusion was that actually undue influence evolved from a very different worldview in um, uh, Judeo-Christian England, where parties are seen as individuals and unquestioning obedience, trust and self-sacrifice are regarded as not, not as virtues, but as conditions that require equity's protection. And in contrast, in finding um, uh, undue influence in Singaporean family business context, to do so would go against their for informal legal order. It would amount to saying that the father has done something wrong in getting the wife and child to support the family business. And it would support the father's loss of face um, by the disobedience of his wife or child, um, which you know, is culturally deemed shameful and disgraceful. So actually it's not surprising that Singaporean courts have applied the doctrine of undue influence in the way that it has. In fact, I think it would be surprising if it didn't, that when fathers get their um, wives or children to guarantee his debt, uh, this is as it should be. It is not a suspicious transaction that calls for an explanation. And so I was really fascinated to find 
in Thai law, um, that it, and they have the same idea, but they explicitly say it, that if you enter an agreement out of so-called reverential fear, you cannot set it aside. So if you do it because, you know, that's not regarded as coercion, even though it is highly coercive, right? So they recognize that these things are proper. It's interesting to observe how the interplay between cultural factors like Confucianism and also the preponderance of family businesses have played a role in shaping contract law in jurisdictions like Singapore. But as for differences, what would you say are some comparative differences between contract law regimes in Asia and what explains these differences? Well, some of the differences run along the lines of whether the Asian jurisdictions are broadly civil law or common law. Um, they tend to, um, you know, in general, these jurisdictions tend to rely quite, quite strongly on their European source jurisdictions. So the differences there map on to their kind of mother jurisdiction, as it were. Um, but I think we can note um, the strong gravitational pull of the source jurisdiction in the sense that the Asian courts keep looking to legal developments in Europe. So, and the problem is that this can deliberately, uh, sorry, this can undermine the deliberate departures from the source law at the time of transplant. So at the time you took the law over, you might have tweaked it deliberately. But if you keep going back to the source jurisdiction, that will undermine your efforts. And it can stifle the development of local laws suited to local circumstances. So for example, Hong Kong, because of its fairly precarious position, even before the security laws, they wanted to maintain their um, their reputation as a place you did business. So they wanted to keep very, very close to the common law, right? And so they were holding on to mother's skirt very tightly. Um, but if you look at Singapore, it's much more confident and the judiciary have deliberately departed from... Um, from from the law in the UK, so um, I'll talk a little bit about more about that later. But I'll give you um, an example. So the Indian contract law, which is a statute based on the English law, um, it does not limit claims for non-pecuniary loss. So non-pecuniary loss is things like pain and suffering, intangible losses. But the Indian Supreme Court cited only an English contract book, Chitty, to align Indian law with the English law, right? So they, they, they uh, looked to the mother country and therefore ended up restricting the law from what uh, was taken over. The same happened in, in civil law countries. So the Japanese civil code is strongly influenced by German law. So they keep going back to mother Germany, right? And uh, Japanese law doesn't talk about fault but they adopted the German requirement of fault in order to um, claim damages and termination. And uh, this led some terrible contortions in the law. Um, the Japanese and Korean civil codes also adopted the common law test of remoteness, but then they kept looking back to another country and got themselves thoroughly tangled up with the German doctrines of adequate causation and the difference theory. So... I think, I think, like in most subjects, it's very difficult to generalise. You can generalise only in these ways. 
But, you know, in order to find out what's going on, there is no no substitution for going case by case. Um, as I said, Singapore is, is a more confident in itself and it's rejecting some of the things that um, the UK Supreme Court are doing. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I wonder um, about it because they... They will reject the law, but they'll come to exactly the same conclusion. But they just want mother mother to know that they don't that that they are rebelling a bit. Uh, so, for example, they've rejected the automatic availability of specific performance and land contracts. Um, they've emphasised that they would be more receptive to a good faith duty because uh, of the emphasis on consensus in society. Um, a recent example, which I think is absolutely fascinating, is the. Indian law. So in 2018, they completely changed their law. Previously, they followed the English law that in saying that specific performance is discretionary, and if damages would do, then you should give damages and you shouldn't give specific performance. Now, it is mandatory for a court to grant specific performance unless you can come within one of the exceptions. So they've turned it on its head, and you might wonder why. Um, they've given very little account of it, but I've been talking to quite a few people and we think that the idea is to provide greater certainty on what remedy would be granted and to avoid people coming to court because of the huge expense and the huge delays and backlogs of cases. If you want damages, you have to come to court to get them calculated. But if you say that the primary remedies is you just got to do what you promised to do, then that is the default and that will discourage people from coming to court. So they might not be principled reasons, they might be uh, pragmatic reasons. I wonder if there's any reason why some jurisdictions are more confident, as you mentioned. Is this mainly related to the confidence of their own judicial traditions or is there a deeper political imperative that undergirds this deviation from source jurisdictions? Yeah, no, I think it's definitely uh, socio-political and economic strength as well, right? So um, uh, I think, like I said, I explained Hong Kong's sort of relative timidity in respect of um, legal developments in in terms of their um, uncertain place in the world, right? So if you are uncertain, then, well, you still want to encourage people to come and do business in Hong Kong. You want to say, hey, don't worry, we've got, you know, we are applying a very prestigious uh, legal system here. Um, I think India is dealing with its own problems. So there may be a number of factors, you know, uh, and also inertia. So when I talked about uh, the gravitational pull of the of of the mother country, uh there's always a certain amount of inertia because if your if your academic base and your lawyer base is trained in the mother country, you know they've all been trained in their masters or PhDs in Germany. That's what they know, right? That's what, and people just keep reproducing after their own kind. So I think you can find all kinds of reasons. Singapore clearly has come into its own, um, you know, in the last well thirty years. I uh, you know it's been astonishing development. And uh, so I think um, you've also got in contract law a very distinguished uh, um, jurist in Andrew Pung who believes very much that Singapore needs to go its own way. So I think it's, it feeds into the whole post-colonialism uh, movement. 
What are some features that set Asian contract law regimes apart from other continental law regimes in North America or Europe? I think this is, um, you know, broadly speaking, I would say it's actually quite hard to point to on a formal basis because, uh, because laws have a tenacity. You know, lawyers are, it's all based on precedent, so we always have one foot in the past and uh, lawyers have their own distinctive peculiarities, which preserves that um, law that they have inherited. So one could say that certainly in terms of international trade, there is a huge incentive to do what other people understand in order to give confidence. So law on the books, it is quite hard to find something which is distinctly um, Asian. Um, but we're really only at the start, so I don't want to, I, I want to say that I don't know enough to say categorically. Um, I've already given quite a few examples above, really, um, talking about Confucian values. But I can talk a little bit about some local flavours. For example, uh, in Malaysia and in India, uh, they recognise the contract to marry, right? And um, the award of exemplary damages because of what they regard as aggravated harm if you uh, breach a contract of marriage. But you wouldn't find that in Singapore, for example, right? Uh, in Japan, Korea and Taiwan, there is a duty to disclose if someone has died on a property, in a sale of property, because of um, certain... Um, they, they feel it's very important uh, because, you know, if someone has died on the property, that property will be devalued. And if you don't disclose it, uh, the contract is off. Um, but that wouldn't, you know, that would be different in, in some jurisdictions. In Japan, I've been told that uh, that certain, that a third party beneficiary has to expressly accept the benefit um, to make to get an enforceable right. And that was in keeping with the samurai spirit, but I've never really quite understood that. So I need to dis uh, bear, um, go into that a bit more. Um, in our final volume, which we haven't actually started, we'll be looking at the types of agreements that will not be enforced because they are either illegal or they contravene public policy. And we expect to see some quite illuminating things which um, relate to cultures, right? So it's things like, you know, prostitution, organs, um, uh, this kind of thing. And, and, you know, I remember in Taiwan, it is actually illegal to have an affair. Did you know that? I was a bit astonished. So it's a, you know, it's a criminal offense. And so, you know, I, I think it expresses the extreme moralism of Taiwan. And so I do think we're going to find some differences um, there which expresses some of the cultural values of the places. So as a final question, in your view, what does the future look like for Asian contract law? Well, I think the research shows that transplant has um, taken root and flourished in Asia, um, but the development of the received laws has to be understood um, in the context of its own recent history. Um, the local culture and the fact of legal borrowing. So um, the important thing to, is, is, is to realise things are never as easy as it looks. So the overt divergences may actually not translate into significant differences in practice, or they may be softened by other doctrines. And then the overt convergences 
uh, do not necessarily mean that they are the same, that they may actually be quite different. So I think given how culturally and socially um, different the Asian jurisdictions are from each other and from Western jurisdictions, the same concepts will not necessarily mean the same thing. What's reasonable in one culture may not be reasonable in another culture. You know, these qualitative words which law uses a lot, like reasonableness, remoteness, proximity, you know, a lot of these words which need to be interpreted will be interpreted, um, you know, you can't accept, expect that they'll be interpreted the same. Now, the main thing I would say is uh, that um, we've only just begun, you know. We've only started to work out what we don't know. And every time I, um, I read an article, I come up with, you know, 50, at least 50 questions of new research that can be done. So I am very humble about this project. I think all we've done is is to put one dart in the dartboard and to hope that it will attract a huge uh, agenda of research projects. I think it has started something. Um, we, uh, you know, there's great enthusiasm for doing more work. Um, and it reminds me of um, something Albert Einstein said. He said, as our circle of knowledge expands, so does the circumference of darkness surrounding it. So there is just so much out there to do. Um, I don't think, I think all of our conclusions are conditional, they're tentative um, until, you know, all truth is, is tentative, isn't it, until we find a better version of it. But um, I think there's tremendous amount to learn and it's, you know, there's a lot to, for business lawyers, for commercial lawyers, for contract lawyers, but also for comparative lawyers and for thinking about sociology as well. So I've been really um, pleased that as an immigrant, twice, I would say I've been transplanted twice, uh, once to New Zealand and then once to the UK. And I think in middle age, uh, one always tries to find a way home. And I found a long project which um, allows me to combine East and West and, um, you know, it allows me to spend time in the East and to eat good eat good Asian food. <laughs> I can only imagine how good the food is and probably how it compensates for the, the troubles that were faced in bringing this project together with editing work. You mentioned that this was a way home for you personally, but certainly for many of our listeners today, you've provided us with a really interesting and insightful foray into Asian contract law. So thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Chen Wishart. As undergraduates, we are only really familiar with English contract law, and even then, just the very tip of the iceberg. So thank you so much for introducing our listeners to the contract laws of Asia, and for sharing your experiences in undertaking such a comprehensive regional scholarship project in this field. You're very welcome. That was Professor Chen Wishart speaking with us on Asian contract law. For more interesting legal discussions and writings, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. In the next episode, we'll be discussing vaccines and patents with Professor Justine Pillar. Definitely tune in if this topic interests you. And once again, thank you for joining us on this episode.